The man of will breaks all boundaries. As above, so below. Magic of come to realize is a new way of seeing our own world. Something divine truly does exist. You're listening to the Culture Shock podcast with your host, Dave Escuro. How's it going, everyone? Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. Today, my guest is author Whiskey Stevens. She has a book called Rise of the Witch that is out now, available um, probably everywhere. Take a look at it. Go check out her social media. We had a, a very amazing conversation. We talked about, um, obviously, her book that's coming out, the writing process, sort of her... Um, inspirations for how to approach the book and of course we could dig into some conversations about Bukowski which is always a favorite of mine so I want to thank Whiskey once again for joining the podcast and being such a gracious guest and without further ado my guest today Whiskey Stevens. I always love meeting and and conversing with new content creators and people who are doing artistic works within the art of magic and, and magical things and spirituality in general you have a new book coming out very soon. In fact, I think at the time that this podcast airs, it will be out, I think, a week later, maybe? Um, yeah, my book comes out on September 8th is when it is released. So, <laughs> Fantastic. So, and, and it's called The Rise of the Witch. And yep. what was your... I always find it, you know, as someone who, who has self-imposed a sentence of facing the, black, the blank page um, once a week, what is that process like for creating, uh, t- undertaking the endeavor of, of creating a, an entire book? Were you on a, a schedule? Um, I'm sure you had a deadline of sorts. Did you sort of give yourself like, I write X amount of words or pages every day? Like, What was your process for book writing? Yeah, actually, it's an, it's kind of an interesting story. So I had wanted to be a writer for a long time. Like, you know, when we say, um, follow your true will, I feel like part of my will is writing because it's something that I've wanted to do forever. And I love Bukowski enough to put his, one of his poems on my arm, <laughs> like tattooed. Um, nice. And there's some controversy. Uh, I got the one where uh, you'll be alone with the gods and the nights will flame with fire. You'll ride life straight to perfect laughter. It's the only good fight there is. Um, and really when I got that, I was talking about writing, like in my mind, it, it spoke to writing. Um, but I had written a, in my, one of my journals, like the beginning of rise of the witch and I had left it and it was something that I thought, well, maybe I'll pitch later. I had tried a, a few different things and, I had some success in getting published before in like mm-hmm. a few magazines and a few articles. And then I had left that. And um, weirdly, I, you know, I like, I did this ritual. I was in my old apartment. I did this ritual uh, because I really wanted to like start writing. Um, and so after that, like a few days after that, I looked in my old journal again and I thought, well, maybe this is something, you know, because it was talking about, making your practice your own. Um, and that's something I think is really important for people to do. And so, uh, I went on Twitter and that's how I found my agent. Um, my literary agent on Twitter, like she was posting her manuscript wish list, and she had, um, you know, things about spirituality. And I thought this is perfect. And literally like that week I got an agent. And then the next week, um, Llewellyn picked up my book. And I attribute it to the ritual, but I don't know. 
so the process <laughs> so the process of writing it was like i got super excited and i had like the first three or four chapters done and then you know i started like as you do i think as artists or as creators we start second guessing ourselves we want everything to be perfect and so there was a period there of you know if i'm being honest like procrastination and i think mm -hmm. that's due to like perfectionism and mm -hmm. i got so frozen up and then um nearly you know near the end of my deadline i was like okay let's let's do this like i'm not gonna sabotage something that i've been wanting forever so you know it's an up and down process i think you have a whole bunch of emotions that really it's just you in your head or that no that and <laughs> yeah and it's it's funny too because for those of us who are practitioners it's often it always amazes me and i'll speak for myself that i'm i'm shocked when rituals work so on the nose i think i've talked yeah. about on this podcast before the house that i'm living in now prior to living here just you know at the beginning of the year I lived in an apartment for like nine years. Um, and uh, and that's not uncommon here in Los Angeles because rent's very expensive. And uh, when I was um, in the process of getting married, I did a sigil to find a temple. And then within a week later, uh, we found this house and we got approved and we moved in, right? We got rented. We rent this house from a lovely couple. And then, and then even before that for a long time my wife and i were long distance she was in australia and i was here in america and i did a thought form to present a pathway for her to find a way here because during COVID, of course everything was closed uh and within a month that pathway presented yeah. itself literally out of the blue and so i would lean towards believing <laughs> that absolutely it was the ritual that led you to that path you know i think so often <laughs> again i'll speak for myself so often i just you you're you're you marvel at the power that it has but you don't always think to do to go there and tap into that power even though it's always there for you so um absolutely let this be a lesson for all that if you're looking for something and you and you want information and knowledge on something do a ritual worst case scenario it's not going to hurt you know but but it may present you something that is life-changing and for you it, it really motivated you to open the door for you to follow uh, your what your dreams were, what your what your desire was. Yeah, uh, I was surprised too, actually, how like how quickly it worked. It kind of was like literally in three weeks, all of a sudden, I was somebody that had a book that was going to be published, and I was like, oh my goodness, like you know. Um, and then you think back, like how six years ago I was like writing um, uh, like op eds and and stuff like that, and you know, uh, I, I've always been somebody who prays. Mm -hmm. So prayer was a big part of that for me. And like, when you talked about that, I, I went into a church, I had just gotten out of a treatment program. I've been like up and down, you know, for a, like, my life has just been like up and down a lot. But um, I had just gotten out of a treatment program. And at that point in time, I was like, I don't know if I can just do this alone. And I was feeling very, very alone. And you know, not to like say like I wanted to trap somebody with me, but I was like, I would love a life partner. I knew I wanted a life partner from a very young age. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, I very, I'm very much like, I'm a, I'm a romantic, uh, to put it point blank. But anyway, so I went into this church and it was empty, you know, and I'm, I'm not really a big church person. I don't go to church on Sunday, obviously, like, but it was an empty church and it said open for prayer. And I thought, well, I'm going to go in. And this was like, 
10 years ago because I've been with my partner for 10 years now. Anyway, so I went in and I just did like an honest like, hey, this is where I'm at in life. Um, and I was just praying like not to, it's like just an omnipresent energy, but, but basically like, hey, um, I, I think I, I'd love somebody to like go through this life with because right now, like whatever. And we've been together for 10 years ever since. And, you know, it's been pretty good for the most part. I think all relationships go up and down, but like, I, I was like, prayer works rituals work and that's really like what opened the door to like me exploring more of like magic because whatever you whatever I seem to do it does work I have had rituals and spells that obviously don't work and you have to tweak them but for the most part you know I think we all have experiences that point us to the fact that what we're doing in this space does have consequences (laughs) either good or bad one of the reasons as to why when I was younger, I really didn't like church, even though, you know, my mother went was I didn't like the idea of having to go through somebody else like a pastor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, the the egregore is like the perfect way to kind of put it, because if we have that collective energy going into this thing that lives on, which has lived on for like, you know, many, many, many years um, it just builds and builds and builds. And of course, like the way that I usually think of egregores and I talk about them is I always relate it to um, Terrence McKenna because mm-hmm. obviously he has passed away, but he has so many like talks and lectures online. And like when I watch them, he is changing my life. He's changing the way that my I'm thinking about the world, the way that I then talk to other people, the way that I even sometimes practice my magic. And so... Um, his egregore is still living on and everybody's feeding into it by watching his videos on YouTube. And so Mm -hmm. like, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about it that way in terms of Christianity, but, uh, that's a perfect explanation. (laughs) So, uh, so take us back. So you, you've, you're now weeks away from releasing a book, which is a huge deal. And, and, and congratulations, because that's a huge accomplishment, not only completing the book, but getting it published. I mean, that those are two monumental mountains that a lot of people never climb and you've done both. So congratulations to you and all the success with that. But let's go backwards. You, you mentioned that your mom was an avid churchgoer and you, you weren't. I always find it interesting that folks who work within the occult space tend to have some sort of beginning in Christianity, typically Catholicism, but not necessarily what was your path? Did you start off like in a typical American Christian home? Um, did it ever appeal to you? Were you from the very beginning? Did you realize your path was a different path? Like how did your foray into spirituality begin? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of my mom uh, went to a Baptist church and my father's family was very like Baptist too. And so they're very much like, I would say the more like they they take everything very literally, and um, it's for it's I think it's strict, you know. From from mm-hmm. what I've experienced now, and like I've been to different church services, it feels more strict, um, and you know you're not you can't get divorced or else you're sinning, and there's a bunch of different things that I think now moving forward. From what I'm seeing in the, the the Christian space, what I'm happy to see 
because I am like, I'm not one to say Christianity is negative. I think that all religions have, or, you know, have this forward progression that I'm happy to see. And if you're, if you are a Christian, I think it's a positive thing to be saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm also working towards moving my faith forward. And so from what I see now, you know, more people are, you're obviously allowed to get divorced, you're able to be gay or bisexual, whatever. It's not something that hopefully people are still in most areas uh, rejecting. But where I am, um, it still, you know, seems to be that way. And so that's really what I grew up in, going there on Sundays. My father didn't go. And I always was like, well, why can't I not go then if my father's not right. going? But um, but weirdly enough, like, I didn't understand why my mother, and I still don't, we don't really talk about it, had gone so into, like, the the Baptist side of it because her mother is catholic and they read tarot cards like my grandmother mm. read reads tarot cards my great-grandmother reads t- read tarot cards and my great-grandfather read tarot cards and it was said that my great-grandfather was the best tarot reader of the family and they had a rule you never charge for tarot readings mm-hmm. um you only you do it for free on your kitchen table for like the you know whoever is coming over and right. so um yeah, I don't really know where that where that jump was, but for me, like I I do think it's important to have something and I for me like I have faith, but I don't feel like it's um I never liked going to to church. I never really liked going to and and talking to the pastor and the pastor saying like that if, you know, just things like that. Like if you got divorced, you were sinning and you had to come to the pastor for forgiveness. It was that type of thing where I was like, yeah, this isn't really jiving with me. I think that we can have whatever we believe in, right? Whether we're, you know, pagans, um, you know, uh, pantheist, uh, whether we believe in one God, I, I feel like we can have a direct connection. I don't feel like we have to go through another human being. So, um, really what happened was I was introduced to the idea of spirituality, tarot and astrology through my grandmother, but um, I wasn't allowed to read them because I was so young. And then as I got older, I was given a book, um, The ABCs of Witchcraft, Past and Present by Doreen Valiente um, by a friend. And it really like it just spiraled spiraled me onto this path of seeking for a very long time. So, yeah, that's how I kind of got into it. But I think there was just kind of this, just this rejection of my biggest thing was I don't want, I didn't understand why we had to go through another human being and why I, it felt like I was being preached at that I couldn't, even though we were supposed to be able to pray, have this direct connection. And through spirituality, I was able to have a direct connection to, you know, the many uh, deities that I now believe in. So it's kind of, that's where it came from. Yeah. And it's interesting too, right? Uh, for your family, your, your extended family to, to have been raised Catholic and to be more open to things like divination, uh, to then your mom sort of rejecting that, which I think is a common thing, right? We, we, we get raised under the tutelage of our parents and then we get to a certain adolescent age and then we reject those teachings and we do our own thing, um, and not so not so dissimilar to your experience, right? Your mom probably found things in, in Catholicism that she didn't jive with. She went to a Baptist church, 
you want to become an adolescent, you find things that you're not driving with through uh, Baptist church and you go on to more uh, paganistic and thelemic you know, religious views. I mean, and honestly, I, I agree with you there. The, uh, while I believe that there's value in counsel and uh, elders, I think even if you look at early, early Christianity, mm-hmm. it wasn't truly designed to be as structured as it is now. I mean, you really have to go back to the Nicene Council of, I think, 300 AD around then to to really start to see the the uh, coalition of what was acceptable Christianity form, right? Uh, through through the Roman Empire and, and how strict that became and how much it amassed power over time. But prior to that, I mean, for upwards of 300 years after the historical death of, or the, the death of the historical Jesus, it was it was magical teachings that was being passed on through individual pamphlets and and probably uh, oral traditions and and things of that nature. And so over time, that has changed. And I feel like through the watering down of some of that early Christian magic, which even pre- predates Christianity, truly. Um, we did get further and further removed from the source to the point where the the idea of someone explaining everything to us made sense. But in the process of that, it gets further and further watered mm. down and also corrupted by, uh, generally speaking, political interests, right? And, and along party lines, you can very much see how a church will teach or interpret a teaching one way or the other. and uh, And unfortunately, that has in my opinion, completely removed much of the value that one can derive from any sort of religious or spiritual organization. When, when the political and the um, and bias and bigotry sort of reared their head into that and corrupt the teachings, then you start getting things like, you know, uh, misinterpretations of things in the Bible that actually say man should not lay with boy and that gets misinterpreted to man should not lay with man. And now that propagates an anti-gay agenda within the church. When in fact that would, that seems contradictory to the teachings of the Messiah that that religion worships. Right. And so I think these are instincts were correct. I think that that breaking away from that oftentimes can allow you the freedom to go straight to the source and get that in, and get that knowledge and and that direct contact um, on your own terms. Yeah, I think that it's important for people to kind of recognize that. And if you do have like the those ideas uh, or feelings inside, I think that's something that you should follow. I mean, um, that's a big part of my own practice is basically just making things feel right for myself. I think that so often we you know, we can see it online, we can see it through so many things today that uh, we have this need sometimes to want to fit in or want to just do things so perfectly to the point where we aren't criticized. And we're actually internally, you know, not allowing ourselves to live the way that feels best for us. And I think either, you know, the way that you're spiritually practicing or the way that you're living uh, any other way, I think it's really important to just follow what best feels best for you. Um, and if that does align with what uh, another teacher is saying or what social media is saying or what somebody else is saying, then that's great. But if it doesn't, then you kind of have to have the, the strength and the courage because it, it does take a lot of courage to kind of make your own way or, or do your own thing and have your own connection with whatever you believe in. Well, I love uh, your banner on Twitter 
which says a cultist author not willing to put myself in a box for social media. Yeah. And I think that that, I think that this is incredibly important, especially on social media. You know, I'm, I, I use it too much. I'm like, I mean, I've said it, I've talked about it on this podcast very openly. Like I, I borderline an addiction to social media, but um, there is probably a, a productive way of using it. But it, you, to your point, you have to be willing to be your own person. You have to be willing to be authentically you before you can be a contributing member to any sort of community um, or even for a community to exist, right? It should be populated with folks who are their own authentic selves. And, and by virtue of that, then you will have a community that's, that is a rich tapestry of diversity. Um, what I see, and I'm sure you experience this often, especially as a content creator, I feel like there's even more pressure as you sort of have a brand that you have to ideally appeal to the largest, you know, uh, the largest audience base. There seems to be pressure to sort of fit in with groups or cliques or uh, make sure everyone knows that you feel exactly the same way as everyone else feels, right? Otherwise, your silence is, is uh, deafening and, and things of that nature. Is it because I'm very lucky. I this stuff that I do, the podcast, the blog, that's just hobby stuff for me. That's just because I get I, I don't like sitting around. I like staying busy, uh, but I don't have to do this stuff for money. Like I have a job. I'm a filmmaker, so it allows me some freedom to be able to just create for the sake of creating. Um, and I hate the marketing aspect mm-hmm. of it. I hate retweeting the the post over and over and over again. But you just understand that that's part of the you know if you want people to listen to your work, that's what you just have to do. As, as a content creator and as yeah. a, someone who now has a book coming out and who's, who's kind of in the marketing ring, do you feel pressure to like mm-hmm. make sure you're, you're appealing to the, the broadest audience possible or do you, or are you just like, fuck it, I me, deal with it or not? Yes, there is a certain marketing thing, right, that goes along with I wrote a book, I'm online, I'm on this like line now where I have to sell so many copies in order to show the publisher that they made a good, um, you know, a good bet with me, basically, um, because I'm a first time author. So yeah, I would love if people bought the book. I'd love, you know, because it's my work, and uh, I care about it. But also, there's a thing where, you know, you don't want to sell out. I think that's the thing throughout, you know, uh, creators and artists is, you, you don't want to sell out because then you are living with a version of yourself that feels very empty. And the not wanting to put myself in a box for social media is basically like uh, the algorithms work in a way where if you do whittle yourself down talking about one thing, then they know who to push your content out to because you're basically mm-hmm. fitting into one specific category. And for me, I don't feel like that's something that is going to be a long-term thing. I'm very creative. I don't want to fit into one specific box. And in terms of liking the same people and, you know, getting into these very, like, clicky niche, like, like clicks on social media, that's something else that I've been thinking about. Um, so I don't like feeling as if, and I've never liked feeling as if you have to only talk to specific people and because mm-hmm. that's how other people are going to like you and you want to make sure that you're friends with with everybody if i want to talk to somebody if i want to like somebody's content and and talk to them i don't care if somebody else doesn't like them 
you know, I'm interacting with them for my own reasons. And so I think that as, as a whole, everything that you do on social media and off of social media, you really have to say, am I, am I choosing to do this or am I letting somebody else make these decisions for me? Um, and I, everybody that I have liked throughout history, this probably isn't going to be, you know, correct to most people, but I have liked the grungy people that just say whatever the fuck they want, live however the fuck they want. And I don't want to be somebody that is thinking, well, is an algorithm going to punish me or am I going to be able to get in with this click if I act this way? Uh, it just doesn't feel right for me. And, you know, for a long time, you know, growing up in the household that I did, it was kind of, it was very controlling. And then in high school, I was up until like, you know, grade 11, I was somebody that was very much a people pleaser. And that's something that I still fight with today. And it's something that I've started to in like the last two years kind of get almost like a little bit angry with to the point where, you know, Thelema spoke to me because I, I wanted to follow my will. And part of my will is living in a way that I want to, um, you know, not doing everything that I want, but, uh, because some things are detrimental to my health. Like if I did everything that I wanted, I'd, I'd be drunk right now. You know what I mean? So, but basically what I'm trying to say is, yeah, fuck the boxes. I don't really want to do any of that. (laughs) Well, well, and I think that you said, you touched upon something that I think is just beyond social media is just general good life advice. Are you making the decision or is someone making the decision for you? I think that applies not only to the algorithm daddy, but it also applies to the state. It also <laughs> applies to your 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 friends, your community. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen you know you can look at the Milgram experiment, or you can look at there's various experiments that show how groupthink can kind of lead people to fall in line and and do things to sort of satisfy the the herd versus you know exploring and expressing their own individuality. And um, as someone who has a Bukowski, I love Bukowski too. He's one of my favorite authors. Uh, As someone who has a Bukowski quote on them, I would assume then, yeah, like being authentically yourself will find an audience. I am, I am steadfast on this belief. If, If what you do is good, if you're good at what you do, it doesn't necessarily need to fit a neat box. Someone will find your work and it will resonate with them in the same way that hopefully it resonates with yourself. You know, um, if, if it's, if that's 2 million people or 200 people or 20 people, I mean, imagine, think of the, 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 I mean, I don't want to use this in the wrong term, but think of the effect or the power or the, or the, how amazing it may be to positively affect 20 people's lives. That's really Mm -hmm. cool. If it's 200 people, that's even cooler. If it's 2 million people, you know, Bob's your uncle. Like it's, it's, I think we should, we should, as, as people who are artists, uh, focus on making art that, that rings true for you, regardless of whether or not it necessarily fits neatly into the zeitgeist at the moment, which you know is going to change, right? I'm at this yeah. point in my life, I'm old enough. I've seen a lot of cycles. I've seen people go through a lot of, <laughs> of trends. I've been through a lot of trends, you know? If you if you go through my 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 photo album, you can find my my early baby goth phase. You can find my rockabilly phase. You can find my <laughs> electro clash phase. You can find my um, normie phase. I mean, like I, you know, everyone 
tries on various identities. And at this point in my life, I've recognized that this too shall pass for better or for worse. Whatever is currently in the zeitgeist will, will come and go and then come back again. My wife and I were at the mall in 90s fashion, fashion that I wore in high school. I'm 40 now. Fashion that I wore in high school is back. I never thought that would occur, but this is the way, this yeah. is the cycle of life. So if you try to capture a viral moment, it's hard as hell. It's like, it's literally like shooting a moving train. And then even if you manage to hit the target before you know it, that target's left and we're on to something else. But, but art that is authentically yours, it should, and I believe does stand the testament of time. Bukowski stuff or, or, or Allen Ginsberg or uh, Chuck Palahniuk or any number of artists that you could list that are controversial in their time and maybe controversial after their time. Crowley, mm-hmm. certainly at the top of that list, <laughs> their work still resonates, even if there's aspects of it that maybe don't age as well. Yeah, I think that what it is, is, um, you know, their work does speak to me and it's in two ways. Obviously, there's a part of me that's very, uh, you know, like I said, I have this person that I would love to be drunk right now, but I can't be because obviously that's just not going to work for the rest of my life and it's not going to be sustainable. And I think that we all have some part of ourselves that is, you know, maybe would be called the shadow or, or something else. Like the shadow, of course, when Jung was talking about the shadow, is both good and bad parts of ourselves. So it could be mm-hmm. that you are a repressed creative. And once you uncover that part of yourself, you're able to now be free and be creative. But potentially there's another part of, you know, myself that's not so good that I need to maybe look at. And I think that people that are fully themselves are going to be showing us the good parts of themselves and parts that you're not going to like parts that are going to be, um, you know, bad. So it allows me and it allows us to look at their work and to look at their lives and, and to really, uh, look at our own shadows. And it helps us in a way to not only uncover, you know, what, we call our true will, but also to live in alignment with what we ourselves have as our own moral code. Um, so that's kind of why I I am drawn to to their work. I also, you know, I'm drawn to people that are, you know, living a very free life, and that's gonna not that's gonna look like not always showing the best part of yourself. Um, if we're being honest and real. So, um, yeah, also like with the numbers thing, it, it, it gets me caught up with, you know, we're told so much through spirituality or through different paths that we're supposed to be uncovering the ego or like, you know, removing some layers of the ego and working through that. And I think that today the biggest thing is like, why did we want the big numbers? Is it just speaking to our ego? Are we wanting it for something else? Is it showing that we have power? Is it a social status thing? Is it because, you know, we're going to use it for leverage? Like, what is it? What is the number thing all about? And so often it does feel kind of empty. Like I hit, I hit 10 K. Well, each person, each number like is a real person. And I think that's what we have to think about. We're talking to real people. So it's not really just like the whole number. It's like, these are individual people with lives that go outside of this, who are affected by everything that 
we do just because we have an individual will doesn't mean that we're not affecting the world around us. So, you know, I can get very caught up in all this thinking, but it's true. Like, I think so many people are caught up with just the number and it goes beyond that. Um, Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I look, obviously, if you're someone who paints or does podcasts or writes books or any of those things, you want your work. I mean, you put time into it. You put a lot of time into it. You put a lot of thought process into it. You put a lot of physical, you know, learn all the time you put into just to learn the skill. You want it to be appreciated. Of course, that's a normal part of any creation. Uh, very few people want to create something and stick it in a drawer. You know, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's too much work that goes into it. Too much time that's been put into it. Even beyond this individual time for that specific piece of work, there was all the time leading up to even get to that point. But um, but you're right. At the end of the day, those numbers don't really matter. People matter, right? The people on the other end matter. And again, to go back to the analogy I threw earlier, if 20 people are deeply, profoundly impacted by your work or 2 million passively saw it and never thought twice of it, which is the greater success? It's an open-ended question because it's all it's different to every person, right? Certainly, I would assume that making money from two million cells is going to be more beneficial for you financially than twenty cells. But there's different there's different uh, definitions of success that I think we all should find. And I I know like I I look at stats with the podcast and and the blog I do and things of that nature. And my wife does a Twitch channel, and so she'll look at those things as well. But I always try to remember. Don't think too deeply about these things, you know? And this is one thing I learned when I used to work at a production mm-hmm. company that produced, uh, that managed a lot of YouTube creators. Uh, you know, people see really super high YouTube views and they equate that with success. But the reality of it is YouTube catches, it counts every person who views even for a second, right? So there's other, there's other statistics mm-hmm. that one needs to look into to see what, what retention is and how many times has someone come back to the view and things of all that nature. It's enough to where, while it's important, certainly these things do matter, especially if there's a financial attachment to your art, there's a greater there's a greater purpose in your creation. And if you worry about those numbers, you're, you can very easily get drawn off course into trying to, you mentioned earlier, like people please accommodate the masses and you mm-hmm. might lose you might lose sight of your authentic perspective and creation. Yeah, I think that um, I've done it both ways. I've had where I was getting paid from solely my work for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a job, uh, a day job now. Um, you know, it's part time. And I like it that way because I'm able to do all my other stuff. But for me, the way it works is I, you know, I love the way that it is now because I don't have to care about you know, it sounds might sound bad, but I mean, I don't have to care about catering to what people are going to think about my work. I'm able to do what I want. And I think that if more people were able to just do what they want, not get tripped up in the, I need to be one thing for social media, or I need to cater to this so that I can get paid. Um, you know, I think that we'd see a lot of different things. I think people would be talking about different things and they'd be voicing their opinions a lot more on, you know, different subjects. And I think that's why so often, like, I really love art, you know, um, because artists in general or like, you know, 
when they're making a painting or something, uh, the best ones to me, they're not catering to anything. And that's something that Bukowski said as well. As soon as you start caring about what people, other people think about your writing or your artwork, you're dead, you're done. It has right. to come from yeah. that place inside of you that, that is just you, that you're doing it for you and for something to, you know, maybe give to the world. Um, as soon as you start catering, that's it. You're, you're not in alignment with whatever it is. And uh, that's something that, you know, you can get off track with, but I think it's important to come back to. And like I said, I think it's important, you know, if anybody is listening and thinking, hey, I, I'm very creative. I want to start something. Honestly, this might not be advice for everybody to take, but for me, the best thing is having an income to where what I do create and put out there isn't affected by what other people think of it. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I think, I think you're right on that. Look, it, it would be amazing to make money purely from the art you create. And maybe that is at some point uh, a result of it. But I think, especially early on, I think your advice is, is very solid. Don't be overly reliant on it because you might find it skewing your output. Um, because I'm a Bukowski fan, is there a favorite work of his that you enjoy or what was the first Bukowski book that you that you read um I have a (laughs) I stole a book from the library uh when I was younger and (laughs) and I have it still so I mean don't come for me uh but I have the book and it's a collected book of poems and there's a poem in there like that's basically talking about how his landlady hung a chicken on the door it was like a cooked chicken. And um, yeah, it's just a weird little poem. And for some reason, I really like that one. But that's the book that I have. Uh, I read um, Post Office and I watched, there's a movie and there's a, there's two movies, but the one that I like the best is Factotum mm. because it's very, it's very real to the point where I think it showed his life or what he said was his life because... Um, you know, people can, uh, you know, he can write stories, but um, it shows a very real side of, like, what was happening in his life at the time, and, like, how he was trying to be a writer, you know, he's an alcoholic, um, you know, just mailing things in to, at that time, you mail them in every day, and uh, hope that something happens, and it's where he moves away, he's not even at the address anymore. And that's when he gets a letter that he's been accepted. And to go back to that, I think it's important to think about that because as you're putting work out in the world, it may not be accepted right away. A lot of people that are forward thinking aren't going to line up with the times. So maybe your your work gets picked up, you know, two years from now. Or like Frida Kahlo, her work was, you know, huge after she passed away. And that sucks. That sucks. Yeah. But I'm saying put it out anyway because you don't know how it's going to affect the world in two years from now, five years from now, 20 years from now. And if you sell out, it's just going to not feel as good. Um, and you, and what happens to me is I gauge, like I got into this really, I'm very competitive and sometimes you can get that way. And you have to think, what the hell does it matter what somebody else is doing if I don't feel good about what I'm doing? It kind of all comes back to that. And I think that you know, in a round circle way, the same thing is true on social media with your practice. So much of social media is people taking pictures of like their altars that look perfect, or I did this ritual or whatever. And, um, 
I think that social media makes us think way too much about other people's practices or other people's work in general and not enough about what we're doing and what what feels good for us and if we are you know uh in contact with any form of divinity right it's almost as if if you start to live for social media if you start to live for posting those altar pictures or whatever uh it takes away from the whole point yeah i agree and there's a couple of things that you that you said that really resonated me with one this is where the removing of the ego comes into play because if if you're creating your art for uh, a claim you have very little control over that but if you're creating art to have an impact on people well then if it happens after your death the goal was achieved regardless of whether you were there to recognize it or not because it shouldn't really matter at that point um the other thing that you noted about forward thinkers was this there's a there's a famous quote by way of wayne gretzky that came from his father walter gretzky which is that a good hockey player plays the puck where it is. A great hockey player plays the puck what it will be. And I've always tried mm-hmm. to take that on. I've really always tried to think about where the puck either is going or should go and try to create based on that. You know, I, I look for voids that I find that, that are voids to me. And I try to fill those because I don't see anyone else doing it. And whether or not that resonates with 10 people or more doesn't really matter because now I know that at least someone who feels like I do will look and say, Oh, okay, well look, this void is filled, whether or not it's good or not. I don't know. I have no control over that, but it's someone's doing it at least. And maybe someone, a worst case scenario, maybe someone will be inspired to do it better than me, you know, and, and they'll be the ones who reach it, but it'll be uh, in the same way that Iggy pop was the godfather of punk, right? If not for Iggy pop, you don't get the sex pistols and the Ramones. And so, or, you know, so sometimes, or the New York Dawes, you know, so sometimes your place in history is not defined by your own individual, your own individual success, especially as it relates to, to monetary success. And it's funny that you mentioned Factrum as your, as your preferred movie for Bukowski, because mine is Barfly. Um, and, and <laughs> subsequently, and, and, and subsequently Hollywood, because I'm a filmmaker. So um, I've read I've read almost all his books except for Post Office, ironically. That's the one I have it. I just haven't read it for whatever reason because I've got a, a bookshelf full of books that I'm slowly getting to and I can never catch up based on my buying habits. But um, but Hollywood was one of those ones that when I was moving to Los Angeles was hugely influential to me because I was in love with Venice when I first moved here. I, lo- I mean, in the Venice of now is not the same Venice of Bukowski's era, but it's like it had a magic to it. I used to live just a few blocks from his old bungalow in Hollywood. You know, um, I, you know, I love, I love Mickey Rourke and his portrayal of a, of a real dirt bag, you know? Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure Matt Dillon did a good yeah. job as well, but, but like it, it's, you know, and, and again, it's hard because these days, what I notice is that a lot of folks reject any art from someone who hasn't passed the purification test. You know, it's almost like um, everyone has to have be baptized through fire and come out clean. Otherwise, their work is somehow regulated to being not worthy of consumption, which I think is odd because it's hard to judge folks based on the morality of the current era, especially the further you go back, right? I mean, at some point, I'm, I'm expecting Shakespeare to get canceled any moment now. Um, 
and I'm not one who rages on canceling or anything like that, but I just feel like there's a nuance that's lost. And someone like a Bukowski, who is not a good dude, right? Or, 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 no. you know, or be, I probably wouldn't have a beer with Bukowski, yeah. you know? I don't need to, though. I don't need to hang. Not everyone who does art has to be my friend. In fact, I'd prefer that they're not my friend, you know, to some degree. I'd prefer that I'm just able to enjoy their mm-hmm. art and not be disappointed by the humanity that they are. Right. And all of their flaws, unless you are, unless a genuine friendship develops, of course. And I think that's an important lesson. And it, it's, 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 um, it's inspiring to me, actually, that someone would be so openly influenced by a controversial writer, because I agree with you 100 percent. Like there's there's a there's a there's a there's a dirty, grimy truth in a lot of his work, even if even if you read something, you're like, that's fucked up. That's OK. It's okay that it's fucked up because there's still value in there um, within reason, of course, you know, digest to your own sensibility. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the same thing is true. Like if we didn't have Hemingway, who knows, maybe Hunter S. Thompson wouldn't have written in the same way. I mean, he said he uh, copied one of Hemingway's books in order to get like the pace down. And he's another guy that, yeah, he lived a very controversial life and of course Bukowski was very misogynistic and um, not a good guy but I think that uh, what speaks to me is the art is the writing and that's what they're known for and and some of the writing um, there are some you know controversial things today but uh, that's also why I really like talking about um, you know thinking for yourself Uh, if we're not um, going to be able to think for ourselves. And of course, we're going to fall into, um, you know, other weird ways of thinking like, oh, maybe misogyny is okay. Well, no, we know it's not okay. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't like, you know what I mean? So uh, in that way, I, I'm able to think for myself. So I'm able to enjoy the art. I'm able to enjoy the writing. I'm able to enjoy like, one of the things I like is the way that these people use words. The mm-hmm. way that it flows on the page. That's something Bukowski talked about. That's something that Hunter S. Thompson talked about. And if you're a writer, you're going to kind of get what they're saying. Um, so I can appreciate these people for the artwork. I don't have to like them as people. And right. I, and in that context, I can like some of the things that they did. I can like a few of the ways that they live their life. I don't have to like everything. And I think that's... Yeah. You know, as people, we're allowed to do that, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. I mean, um, yeah. So, so another thing too is like this monopolization of of topics or of content. I think that what we talked about is important. Where if we didn't have Hemingway, maybe Hunter S. Thompson wouldn't talk or wouldn't have written the the way that he did. And like you said, with music. Um, it kind of builds on each other. And I think that people are allowed to. Something that has happened with social media is people think that they have this monopoly on this. But if we aren't allowed to, like, say, hey, I watch this and then talk about it or have your own opinions on it and also share those, that's where it gets kind of, um, you know, you're only in one, like, viewpoint. And it gets kind of weird. And uh, especially with apps like TikTok, everybody kind of wants to be the same. And I think it's kind of getting weird. So in the future, like if I was going to predict, it could go one of two ways. Either everybody's going to weirdly become the same person. I think that more people are going to actually start to look at it and say like, 
actually I'm an individual. I want to break free from this and hopefully mm-hmm. things will change to the point where algorithms are working for us, where uh, more people are, you know, coming out to their own individualism and fighting against things that are like always the same. Like you scroll through TikTok, every video is like the same thing. It's, it's yeah. weird to me, but I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Well, and, and and all those authors that you listed are some of my favorite and, and most influential. Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Hemingway is my favorite author. The Sun Also Rises is my favorite book of all time. Um, Charles Bukowski, and you could toss in the comedians like a George Carlin. These are all folks that have been highly influential in a lot of the ways I think, but I don't think that I live my life like any of them. In fact, I, I would very adamantly say that I do not, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think I have a lot more empathy than any of them combined. At least I try to. Um but what I, and I'll pose this question to you, I guess. One of the things that I find is that the more homogenized we become with our opinions in groups, the, the more insecure our opinions are. Like I can read, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a incredible, I'm very openly a socialist. And, um, but I read, I read blogs from, people who are con- slightly conservative. I mean, I don't read like alt-right shit, but like, you know, I'm, I, I can read a John Michael Greer, for example, who probably has more conservative viewpoints than I do. And I'm totally okay with that because I'm not insecure with my own beliefs that I feel like the, the mere sight of a, a dissenting opinion is going to banish my viewpoint and make, make me become some sort of a zombie. I feel like the more we are able to be around differing opinions and differing personalities, the more, the, the stronger our own personal convictions become. Is that something that you find as well? Or, or, you know, or am I off base on that? Yeah, I think it's important that, like, the way that I think about it is, it's important to be around people that have opposing opinions, because you kind of get to see a different way of thinking, a different side to it. Like, we know, I think, most people, hopefully, as human beings know when something is like inherently wrong, right? We know Mm -hmm. that racism is wrong. We know that judging somebody based on whether they're gay or lesbian or straight or, you know, their sexuality is wrong. We know that, uh, you know, treating people shitty is wrong. Like I know it's rude to be rude. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think that inherently we do know I think what happens is there is a line between allowing things to go forward that are inherently wrong, but I think it's also important to listen to other people's opinions because it kind of, um, it allows, kind of like what you said, it allows you to kind of see differently. And also, let's say that you have a point of view you're able to like look at the way that they're kind of debating and see, well, okay, this is the way that they're thinking. And now I know that I can talk to them on this topic and kind of, you know, um, I know that they're thinking about this so I can share my opinion on that point of view, because maybe the other people that they're talking to also feel like this. Uh, I don't know if that made sense the way I said it, but basically I do believe that it kind of, allows you to have stronger convictions but also if you're only in an echo chamber you don't get to see what the rest of the world is actually thinking or feeling and um it's really important it's important to like you know to have culture in all different areas of your life and and a variety of things that you're reading a variety of things that you're like watching 
you know, don't just get stuck in one echo chamber or like go traveling, go see different parts of the world. If you get stuck, then that, that I think is what breeds, um, you know, getting stuck in like negative things too, like racism or misogyny. If you don't ever, if you're only in one small little town, right, you're not, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's like only filled with like, you know, certain type of people, you're going to you have very different views as to somebody who's grown up in an area of like that's multicultural. I think people need to be cultured in a variety of different areas. And so I do believe that, yes, you should read things and, and listen to people and um, see. And I think that's why it's important to have your own core. Like, do I believe this? Or again, is it somebody else's belief? And when it comes down to it, I think people do know the difference between right and wrong or, or what right and wrong is for them hopefully that makes yeah, sense <laughs> no no it absolutely did and there's a and look there's a there's a quote that um i want to add to what you said because i think everything that you said is is dead on and i think especially equating it like existing within siloed clicks atomized clicks is 100 percent equatable to staying in your small town i, I was i grew up in a small town in south texas and if I had stayed there, I'm quite certain that my worldview would be vastly different than it is now. In fact, Texas is such a large state that even really up into my 20s, I hadn't traveled much outside of the state, much less out of the country. In the last few years, I've been fortunate enough to, I've visited Australia multiple times. I've been to Amsterdam. I've been to Germany. I've been to Prague. I've been to Italy, um, Canada even. And, and like, Again, mo at least half of those things were because of work. It's not like I was on vacation. Some of them I I've been able to, in latter days, been able to go on vacations. But just just actually exploring the, the differences of the world, it, because of my job, I, I've worked in all multiple states in the United States doing film work. And every time I travel, it expands my worldview. And it makes my worldview, I think, more palpable for everyone else I'm talking to. I think I can have conversations with a great number of people when you exclude the extremist. I generally, uh, as as uh, uh, my guest a couple episodes ago said, I don't want to uh, waddle in the mud, you know, with folks. But like <laughs> good faith conversations, I can generally have a conversation with a, a lot of different points of views now. And a lot of it's because, again, expanding your horizons. And I think that exists not only on a macro level, but on a micro level as well, especially when it comes to, so and I don't want to rage on social media because I do that every episode, but like, you know, especially on social media because so <laughs> many, so many of us are on there. I do want to add this thing though. And it's one of my favorite Alistair mm -hmm. Crowley quotes, which is it's necessary that we stop once and for all this ignorant meddling with other people's businesses. Each individual must be left free to follow their own path. And um, I find that if we spend less time worried about everyone else's perceived flaws, um, again, and I caveat this with if you see someone bullying or something like <laughs> that, then you should, you, I feel like you should be obligated to speak up. Um, I, I grew up punk rock. And so I'm very big proponent of if someone falls in the pit, you lift them up. But conversely, I'm very against the idea that if someone falls in the pit, everyone throws a kick in which I see a lot on social media. And if you've, anyone who follows me knows that I've got a block list like longer than the Declaration of Independence because I can't stand dogpiling. It's like instant block for me. I'm not going to deal with them too old at this point. Um, but 
But beyond those those extreme examples of where you probably should interfere or intervene, rather, stop worrying about what everyone else is doing. Do your thing. Let them do their thing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm bringing up all the Thelemic themes because they're relevant. And accept people for who they are, even if there's differences. I'm again, you know, not everything is an extreme. You know, and, and and I think in social media, we get very caught up in that. Like everyone is an extreme. Like I've seen creators who will, anytime there's someone who has an even remotely dissenting voice, they'll call them a Nazi. You know, it doesn't matter what their political affiliation is. Mm-hmm. They'll call them a Nazi. We put people in a box that allows us to ignore their, their point of view without having to work through the nuance of it. And that's a shame, you know, that, and again, I think it, it, it comes from an insecure perspective on life. That you're that you're so worried that if any dissenting voice penetrates your little bubble, that it's somehow going to invalidate your own beliefs. And if you if you believe if you have strong enough conviction, then it actually should be the opposite. A dissenting voice should strengthen your opinion and should and and should broaden it. Just like you know, going to Italy may mean that you have to adhere to different customs, but that will then help you grow your own perspective on life. And um, and 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 develop you and evolve you as a human being. Yeah, I think that um, something you know, there's a lot of debate online about you know every man and every woman is a star, and I've heard the debate of well, that means some stars are brighter than others. And to me, I'm like, well, that's your that's the way that you're judging people. That's your human judgment. You know what I mean? So I think that. Mm-hmm. No, obviously I'm going to correct myself here. No, that's not what I believe. Every man and every woman is a star. We all have divinity. We are all equal in that way. And I think that when we put weird judgments on things is when we get into very negative things. Like nobody should be looking at it as, well, different stars burn brighter than others. I think that we, if we all have an individual will, that means our will is evolving through the world in the only the way that it can so we are even though we are following our individual path we are affecting the world around us and so nobody has the right to judge whether you know our work is greater or lesser than or our will is greater or lesser than i think that the only person that gets to put any judgments on that is ourselves of you know whether we think we're doing you know, good work or, or not good work or whether we feel good about what we're doing or not. So I think that speaking up about or like talking more openly about what you believe in terms of uh, if you are in a specific like uh, group or, or like religious belief or ideology, right, uh, like Thelema, I think it is important because some people really can fall into these weird ways of thinking that make them judge other people and that's not like to me that's not what it's about at all so <laughs> right well it's it's funny that that someone would say that some stars burn brighter because the reality uh, although i'm sure scientists believe that there are stars that burn brighter i'm sure there's different size stars i'm not getting into that realm but as humans the reasons why the reason why some stars appear to burn brighter than others is because of our perspective. So, like mm-hmm. just the other day, my wife, who again is Australian, was commenting on how large the moon was. And in Australia, the moon always seems so much further away than it does here in America. Depending on the time of year, 
something maybe and depending on where you live on this big giant globe circulating in the sky you're you may view something larger than someone on another part of the world would so the idea that some stars burn brighter is is all a matter of perspective and if you change your perspective you'll recognize that there are other stars that might bright burn brighter from a different vantage point yeah just like catching that stuff is important to me you know because it's like it's not about judging people in that way so fun that out absolutely <laughs> absolutely so what you know through sort of a, having a, a, a family history of divination um you know on online you would call yourself a witch and a thelemite and a death worker i'm not familiar with death worker i am more familiar with thelemite and and witchcraft can you explain some of that to me and sort of like what that means to you and how that resonates in your day-to-day life and ultimately how that represents itself in your in your art yeah so well my grandmother passed away the grandmother that read tarot and so it was pretty impactful for me and the way that she passed away I just noticed some things that it bugged me you know what I mean like people get so fearful of death that they aren't able to be with the person who's actually dying you know in that present moment right they're thinking about all these different things they don't want the person to die like they would rather have them live or like continue to live or just right until the moment of death think that they're gonna make it when i think what really spoke to me was i was you know around my family and i was just noticing that there could have been so much more conversations or so much more like honest uh just being there in the present moment if we were able to accept a death for what it is. And I think, you know, that led me to thinking like throughout my life or throughout society in general, like here, like in the West, there's this thing where we put off talking about death. We don't think about death as often, you know, maybe for artists. Yeah, it's different, but like for the general population, we don't think about it. Every day is just putting it off and off right until maybe the moment of our own deaths or, or something happens to our family member and we're like, oh yeah, right, we do die. And so we're so afraid of it that we're not there presently. And that bugged me so much that I wanted to do something. And so I ended up taking a death doula course. And um, the death doula course, it just takes you through basically like Um, talking to somebody about their death, uh, getting things prepared and helping the family through that so that they are able to spend time with their family member. Um, And it it talked about different things that, uh, you know, you go through the vigil process and and then after when somebody dies, you know, whether somebody wants to have a home funeral. uh, That's a big movement now because people are having home funerals instead of paying so much money uh, to do other avenues and so yeah it took you through everything washing the body doing a home funeral um getting in contact with your local funeral homes or uh, hospice or things like that to help the family through things and then um while i was doing a meditation with the tarot cards i started to think like you know as above so below so everybody says the fool's journey is the journey through life But um, I think that it also can help us to look at the way that we feel about death. Uh, And, you know, it's very hypothetical. 
because uh, I don't know what happens after I die, but I thought maybe the fool's journey could also be like a mirror to some things that happen after death, right? If you if mm-hmm. you do believe that something happens after death, it could be speaking to that. So right now, uh, what I'm trying to do with my work and what I'm going to do moving forward is I want to start talking more about death and dying and also how death and dying relates to uh, occult topics. And we see that, like, it was a controversial post, I would say, in the beginning of my, like, Twitter career (laughs) of being on Twitter. I posted that, you know, we cross the abyss throughout our lives in, like, really little ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was kind of controversial because people highly disagreed with that. But in some way, I think, like, it kind of parallels death. And uh, I think that we do have a lot of grief and we do have a lot of death throughout our lives all the time. Things happen. Relationships fall apart. You know, obviously pets die, family members die, but things die around us all the time. The seasons change. We're just not thinking about it in that way. And it doesn't mean that it has to be this huge, scary thing. And that's something that spirituality has helped me with. And, you know, my own very strange experiences of spiritual things that have happened to me to where you know it helps you to not be so afraid of that moment and you can live life in a different way you really appreciate the time that you have you're able to spend time with your family members and a lot of the spiritual stuff it does help with with that as well so anyway i started thinking about the tarot as the journey throughout the afterlife um and that's basically what I'm doing now with a podcast and what I want to do moving forward with my work uh, is explore that a lot more. But that's how I got into it. I just, you know, my grandmother was dying and I saw that we could have been so much more present if we were able to accept that, accept death for what it is. There's a, there's a person I have a deep amount of respect for who, who said, you know, death is nothing but a step for a stepper. And, and that resonates with me, you know? Um, And, and so I, I feel like you're right that there is a our relationship with the idea of dying and things ending is somewhat immature, underdeveloped. Maybe is the better term for it. Um, if you if you read the history of like a, a funeral arrangements in the funeral industry, it's pretty fascinating that how death how deaths of a family member, for example, would have been treated prior to the Civil War, and how that radically changed yeah. with the mass amount of deaths within within the country and uh you know why there was a necessity to set up certain funeral arrangements and things of that nature and bombing and things of stuff like that and how when the civil war ended that industry had to find a way to substantiate itself because it just you know it's almost like a during covid we might have like covid officers right you know certified covid officers like i am uh but when COVID, hopefully knock on wood, if it ever ends, that job would cease to exist, right? The funeral industry mm-hmm. was very much in that same ilk, except it did a mass propaganda push to to put into our the, the society's minds that dead bodies were uh, dangerous or disease ridden, and thus they must be removed from the home as soon as possible. Um, and prior to the civil war, that would not have been the case. You know, my wife has a book that's like, shows all these death photos that people used to take, you know, and 
people would leave dead bodies in their home for days on end to like really come come to term with the end and and the leaving of someone mm-hmm. you know i i absolutely think that we need to have conversations about death and what that means and talk about and explore at different avenues alternatives to the traditional big funeral industry everyone calls like big big tech big farm big funeral right it's just as real and i think that there's there's absolutely room to have these conversations that might be uncomfortable but are incredibly necessary because unless someone has a secret that i don't i'm not aware of it's coming for us all right death comes ripping so uh, you might as well prepare yourself in a healthy way otherwise you know you you put a you put a burden on the fa- on your family um, and also it will make your own relationship with death uh, unhealthy. Yeah, definitely. That's one thing that uh, we talked about in the, the training that I took. And also I've heard it talked about before is like how weird it is that all of a sudden, as soon as somebody dies, the body, like your thoughts are like, ew, like now that person was okay. Like right up until the point they died to touch, hug and kiss or whatever, like, when you're saying goodbye, and all of a sudden, when they're dead, it's like, apparently now they're, you know, gross or unclean because it's a dead body. That's not the case. Like, so you can have a home funeral. I'm really excited that things are, you know, more people are, like, waking up to the fact that you can have a home funeral, that you can actually do um, more than people think in terms of, like, making something suit what that person wanted for the end of their life and to have that, uh, the death that spoke to them. Um, and that's important too, because if we're so afraid of, of death and we're not actually listening to the person that's dying and then we're not giving them maybe, you know, the, the end of life that best suits them or even like the funeral that they would have wanted or whatever happens to them, uh, you know, after death. And I think it's important because as human beings, we, we should have, like, this is our body, right? We have the right to what happens to our body. And I think that should extend to, you know, after death as well. Um, and I think it's important too, like on a psychological thing, like if we're allowed to, or we're, we're, we allow ourselves to talk about death or to even meditate on it without having this, oh my goodness, like, are people going to think I'm suicidal or something? Uh, and use maybe the tarot cards or another, you know, image-based thing or whatever, however you want to do it, meditate on it. Um, It's important because it allows you to, like, go through those fears or allows you to feel like what you inherently, again, going back to, like, yourself, how you feel about death. So there are some, like, different um, meditations that people are doing now, and they're taking people through their deaths, and there's some really elaborate ones where you know, you'll lay down in like a coffin and you'll have like your picture there and you're writing out your own eulogy. Uh, There's less elaborate ones where you're you're just like meditating yourself, but you go through like the whole cycle and it kind of takes you through that. And also this might be weird. I know it might be like UPG, but um, for anybody that has had like an astral projection experience, I was somebody like I had never had one. And then literally like last year, Um, I don't really know how to explain it, but I had this experience where I was not in my, like, flesh body. I was Mm -hmm. walking around my living room, my boyfriend, uh, you know, my partner sleeping on the couch, 
and it was so everything was like dark like a blue and I knew like this well I'm not dreaming this is like I'm walking around the living room and he's sleeping and I know it's weird whatever but that made me think for me I mean it gave me something that I am more than just this physical body so it, it kind of cemented what I wanted to do you know in, in the death and dying space even more that weird experience I haven't had it since, but I I wanted it back because I felt so free. I felt like right. light, very like so free and light more than what I feel now. It's weird to, to say, but I no, wanted I, it I back. I can understand that. <laughs> I mean, if you if you think about it, if our bodies are layers upon layer, you know, if, if our if our self, whatever self as you imagine it to be, are composed of several layers of different energy sources. Uh, it, different energy densities, then once one experiences an astral projection or experiencing themselves in through astric energy, the body, the physical body must feel like being stuck in the mud in, in, in relation, right? Just because of yeah. the, it's like the difference between a rock and water and air. And if you want to think of it that way. Um, so I could, I could totally understand why I would feel I think you use the term light freeing, like as opposed to your physical body, because you would literally be existing in a, in a state that is, that is less dense than our physical bodies. Have you just talking about funerals and, and uh, opening the door to having to to honoring the wishes of those who are passing in, in whatever manner that they see fit? This may be a morbid question, but have you thought about what you would want your your last your funeral or what you would want done with your body when when it's your time yeah yeah um so i for my funeral i mean i want people to have a good time i don't like the whole you know the going through and and having a sad song play that's me right that's Mm -hmm. just what i i want i want it to be something like a celebration um as for my body you know, I have debated this because as somebody that does this work, you, I want to have a plan in place. And, uh, you know, there's the whole like funeral thing to me. I wish that we could do other things that we wanted, but right now for like legal reasons, you can't. So I, I'd say I probably would have it where I'm buried, uh, my, my body, I'm not getting cremated and I don't want a casket. I just want to be like in a, in a biodegradable thing that'll go back into the earth um, more easily, right? So that's, you know, and and there are people that are doing like, you can be in a tree now, you know, so Mm -hmm. there are different things. Um, It's one thing that I do find interesting and fascinating is like the idea of like the ancient Egyptians and like mummification and how, you know, obviously they took out major organs and, and all that stuff, but they preserved the body because part of the belief was that you're coming back um, for some reason. And I, I, I don't have all the answers, but that is interesting to me. I've always found that fascinating. Um, I don't know why I said that, but I don't think like I would want a full mummification process, but just to think about through history, the different ways that we treated, um, the body after death and like the different beliefs surrounding it is, is interesting to me. But I think, um, in general, that whole cycle of just going back into something is what I would want. I'd want it to be where I'm not just stuck in a casket that 
is highly expensive and um for what i like to me like that's just my physical body i've experienced whatever that whole astral projection thing was so it's like that's just my body i can go back into the earth um although there is the thing now where there is the um where, where people have like scientific um you can check for organs or you can donate your body to science um there's a lot of questions now going forward as to do you want to donate your body to science because people are worried that their remains are going to end up where they don't want them to be so you know there's a thing happening right now there's a lot of people talking about the bone trade because Mm. you know throughout history if you were a dentist or a medical student you had to have um real bones so now uh we're we're finding like a lot of these things in uh shops like uh and in the black market and there's a whole thing where do you want to donate it if after they're done what are they actually doing with those remains um is that what you have wanted for them and i think for me um checking yes to donating for science uh i would do yes i think i have that on my driver's license um because i want it to benefit people and and you know do something good with i'm dead already but uh, at the same time you know uh we have to look at what's happening there and like how we actually treat if we are checking yes right it's still it's still like your body so people at the end of the day i think we have to respect what people do want and there's a whole thing with that to where uh right now maybe laws will change to where people are going to be allowed to do more with their body of what they would want after death but right now there's still um some legal things in place that you have to do it a certain way even like home funerals we're changing yeah, yeah, I, I would be a big advocate for those laws changing. I have a very distinct wish for my body when I die. Um, that is highly <laughs> illegal, I'm pretty sure. But um, <laughs> but I, it's, I've been I've been holding steadfast to this since around the mid 2000s, and it was influenced by two movies. There's a there's a 80s movie called Rocket Gibraltar Gibraltar Gibraltar. I don't know, I can't pronounce that well, but it's a good movie. Um, it's about a bunch of young kids grandkids whose grandfather's last wish was a viking funeral and so they steal his body and they push him out to sea um and then i want to say one of the quarries is in it i don't know they're they're in all those movies so i just assume that they are maybe they're not who knows anyway it's a great movie watch that um even if i can't pronounce it the second movie was elizabeth town in which there's a funeral scene where there's a giant paper mache bird and then the band's playing Freebird. So I, having seen these two movies at various points in my life, have derived what I find to be the perfect way to send me out. I think it's very appropriate for me. Number one, I want to find a cliff overlooking the ocean. Now, I specified the Pacific Ocean, um, but, but because of legal laws, you might have to sneak me out of the country. Fine. I don't care. I just want a cliff over an ocean. That's my <laughs> preference. That's how, like, and preferably facing west, just because that's where the sun sets and that's where I'm setting and that's where I want to go. Uh, I want a giant glider to be paper mache to look like a giant black bird. And I would like my body placed on said glider so that it can be pushed off a cliff into, uh, to glide over the ocean as the sun is setting. And a band plays free bird for my close loved ones on, on the, the cliff side 
while someone shoots a flaming arrow perfectly to land on me so that my body will be set aflame as will the glider and the bird and that my remains be dumped into the Pacific ocean or, or whatever body of water one is able to find. I, my, I, I strongly suspect that my family is not taking this request seriously. However, uh, for anyone who is listening, <laughs> this is my final will and testament. This is how I want my funeral to happen. Even if it's illegally, I feel like that's appropriate for my life anyway. Um, we're getting close to the end and I want to spend a little bit of time giving people a glimpse or a snapshot of what rise of the witch is all about um, so that they know kind of what they're in store for and can get excited about purchasing the book, which is coming out imminently. Yeah. So rise of the witch is really about making magic your own way. And I think that, uh, you know, we talked about social media today where when we share certain things, sometimes people are like, you're not supposed to be doing it that way. Or, you know, a lot of things like there are correspondences, right? Colors, you know, candle magic, that kind of thing. But, uh, more importantly, I really talked in the book about if you feel like if you shut your eyes and you think I want to do a certain spell, let's say like a creativity spell and and uh, it doesn't align with orange and you think I feel more creative when I'm surrounded by blue, then you can choose mm. blue. I think that's, you know, so making something your own way and Dora, uh, I almost said uh Dion Fortune, sorry. So Dion Fortune wrote in her book, Mystical Kabbalah, that, um, you know, if you're always going to be a dabbler, then if you're going to start out as eclectic, you're always going to be a dabbler. And to some extent, I do believe that's true. I think that when you commit yourself to exploring a certain path over a certain period of time, you, you will learn more things. So I did in the book write about certain specific paths. We talk about Thelema. We talk about, you know, chaos magic that has six core principles. Uh, we talk about something that I call grunge magic. Um, we talk about uh, Wicca and, you know, all these different things. And we talk about, like, how you can follow these paths, but at the same time, you have to make it your own and you have to be free to like experiment and do things. And if you don't even, if you want to pull from, you know, chaos magic and you want to keep a journal and a very uh, complete record, um, or you want to pull from, you know, Thelema and uh, have certain rituals that you do, maybe you do the LBRP, but you also are, you know, doing some forms of folk magic, you know, whatever feels best for you and don't get caught up so much in, whether people are telling you that it's right or wrong, you know, don't go out and, you know, eclectic doesn't mean cultural appropriation. You know, eclectic doesn't mean taking right. something and profiting from it when it's not yours. Uh, to me, it means, you know, pulling from different sources like chaos magic and, and making something that's right for you, making your own rituals, doing your own magic. I mean, the ritual that I did, for the book was something that I created myself. I performed it in my kitchen, in my apartment, my old apartment. Um, mm. And I think that as long as you have your own brand of magic flowing through everything that you do, that's how you get the best results. So there's a lot in there. I also try to leave a lot of rabbit holes for people. Like if they want to do deeper research, I 
have uh, a lot of rabbit holes and links to other books, like all, all the sources that I use. Like, um, mm -hmm. so you will see references to a lot of Crowley works. You'll see references to uh, Phil Hines, Chaos Magic, and things like that. But in general, it's about doing something your way. Uh, and that's what has worked for me, even though I do follow a, a path now, right? Yeah, and absolutely. And I think that um, I think there's value in both. I think following a current of magic is is highly important, especially, and this is true for all artists, right? If, if Picasso didn't start off with cubism, he he <laughs> understood traditional classical painting before he experimented. So I do absolutely value picking a current of magic and learning and going through the process of that. I think there's there's a lot of value that can be gained from that. But I also believe that there is room to make things your own. You know, uh, occult influencers love to tell you that their way is the right way, just like in politics or in any or, or organized religion, ironically, <laughs> right? Their way is the only way, the only true way, and everyone else is a demon. Uh, it's it's humorous to me how often uh, many creators use the same dogmatic techniques that that organized religion uses and and yet they're the first to sort of rail against them opening the door for folks to experiment i think is absolutely uh crucial uh if for no other reason then it, i mean i remember when i first got into esoteric spirituality um you know my first introduction was hey let me try let me check out witchcraft and there were so there were so many different things online, and many of them conflicted with one another. And there was no real person that I could latch onto to sort of get some sense of like normality with it, right? Any sort of pattern, to at least start me on my journey. And um, and until I found ceremonial magic, and then I did, and then I found both a structure to follow and room to make it my own. And so I think that's incredibly important. And I appreciate one, I think one of your podcast episodes where you talked about your pathway into Thelema being relatively early in that journey. Um, and I appreciate the openness because I, again, mm -hmm. I think online in particular, but also in real life, everyone's trying to present themselves as an authority, right? As though we've all been doing it for yes. decades. When, when the fact is most people online who, most magicians that have been doing it for decades you're probably not going to find online, right? They're too busy doing their practices. They can't keep up with yeah, the tweets. Yeah, I have so. a firm belief that, yes, <laughs> I firmly believe that, and I posted this on Twitter, that most people that know the, the people that know the most, you won't find them online. Like, you're going to find them in, you know, a, a place after you've done some research and you've gone down a rabbit hole or you're connected to somebody or, you know, like through, you know, I don't want to say that everybody has to go through an order. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, like, people have uh, – the people that generally have the most knowledge are very in different places, I guess. But, um, yeah, I wanted to say that, you know, I, I am very new in Thelema. It speaks to me. Um, mm -hmm. So I try to say that I am new. Like, I am new, but I, I enjoy creating this content. And, you know, Crowley said you have to know the, the laws in order to break them or know the rules in order to, to break them mm -hmm. along those lines, he said. And that spoke to me. And that's really why, you know, I, did, I didn't just write a whole bunch of stuff about doing what you want and, and everything. I did also try to include here are some of the magical paths, right? 
And even in Thelema, the one thing that I do like is, yeah, there is like, depending on how you learn, you, you go through a structure and, and things are laid out for you. But at the end of the day, just like you said with, with middle pillar, you have to be able to do it in, in your own way because it's if you do commit to it, it is a lifelong thing. There's no sense in doing something if you're not going to want to do it for, you know, for your lifelong or if you're not going to be able to mold it into something that works for you. So, yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I've actually, funny that you mentioned that. I just said this to a friend. Um, if you... If you look on, again, I'll just use online because it's the easiest thing, right? And it's the easiest place to find a, a bunch of <laughs> occulty type people, right? If you look online and and people are preaching a spiritual path or, or their Patreons, are, and I'm not, not, I'm not dogging it, but there's a lot of folks that are saying, I am the way, right? And if you look at those folks and their lives are a fucking mess, then I think it might give you reason for pause, you know, because if you're not doing magic to improve mm -hmm. yourself and your life, then frankly, I feel like there's better ways to spend your time. The Sopranos are on HBO max. Like if you can't, if you're, if you're not doing magic to better yourself, <laughs> that's an hour that I'd rather spend watching Tony Soprano and his family. You know, uh, I do it because I do truly believe it has the ability to shape our lives and elevate our lives and make them better and give us, a greater mastery over this material plane. And I, I find it refreshing the way that you're mm -hmm. tackling it because you're not presenting yourself as the be all know all grand poobah. You are, a, you are on the path and you're sharing what you know and what has worked for you and your perspective. And I think that there's great value in that. And I think that it's, uh, it's far more attainable for folks to find an entryway in with someone approaching it, from the perspective that you are than from someone who's claiming to be the, the greatest Thelemite on the internet or the most popular Thelemite um, in their little circle of the world. Like that's great and fine and, and dandy, but in the end, none of that matters. That's just more ego stroking. You know, I think approaching and presenting a piece of art that says, this is some structure that I know. This is where I think it's okay to experiment. This is my journey. I'm not at the end. I'm on the path. I want to open the door for other folks to find that path. I think that's, there's a lot of value and virtue in that. And so I, I appreciate that you're taking that approach and I look forward to listening to more of your content. Um, you have a, your podcast is called death, dying and tarot, which I think is on, I know it's on YouTube. It's on Spotify mm -hmm. as well. Correct. And probably um, everywhere you find podcasts, I'm sure. Yeah. It's on all platforms except for Amazon right now. Quickly before I end. I just wanted to say this because I thought it was so important. So the one quote that I always say from Phyllis Seckler is that the way to KNC of the HGA is so personal that any informed teacher would shudder to dictate any part of the path. Each person must grow on his own. Each person, even though his going seems a stumbling, must somehow bring himself to this attainment. And I think so much online, whatever you're into, Thelema, you know, traditional witchcraft, whatever, there are going to be people that try to dictate that path. But it's mm -hmm. so personal. You can't. You can't. So stick to yourself. You know what I mean? Stick to what you know. Do it your own way. And it'll work out. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. And you know what? I'll let you let everyone know where they can find you, your work, your book coming out. Let it. Let everyone know how they can get more of Whiskey Stevens in their life. Yeah. So um, my book comes out September 8th. You can order it. Uh, 
wherever you, you get your books, right? Amazon or, or publisher. Um, also, I'm on YouTube under Whiskey Stevens. And then the rest of my stuff, Twitter is Whiskey Stevens uh, and Deathly Tarot. So it's Deathly Tarot. But if you type in Whiskey Stevens on any platform, you will find me. Uh, and I also write, uh, beginning to write some things on Medium, which is like a writing thing for for. I think for bloggers. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's what I'm doing. I don't know. You can find me if you want. Whiskey Stevens, wherever. That's exciting. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I look forward to learning more about it and reading more of your content. And um, let me know if your book ends up on bookshop.org. It's a website I've been using more lately. And I feel like it gives more proceeds to the artists and less the big uh, conglomerate brazos overlord um but however uh people can access it they should um i'm really excited to, to pick it up myself and give it a read and thank you so much for your time and your perspective and your insights i really enjoyed the conversation i think uh, you're touching on some topics that are i guess as, as far as like the death stuff goes is taboo but it's important it's important that we talk about these things it's important that we draw from influences that maybe aren't uh, have it quite passed the purity test, but have value. I think this is a, this is a mindset that I think we could absolutely benefit from learning from. And so, thank you for you and for all of your efforts. I, I wish you all the prosperity with your book, Gold Rings on You, and hopefully we get a chance to do this once again. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. I would like to thank Whiskey once again for coming on the podcast and being so gracious with her time to talk about her book, her artistic uh, pathway to writing her influences, uh, speaking in a very mature manner uh, with in regards to like controversial authors. I think that's a conversation that oftentimes lacks nuance, and I was really appreciative of the point of view that she provided. Also, our conversation about society's relationship with death, I thought, is again something that is oftentimes not spoken about and certainly not in the, um, a thoughtful manner that it deserves. So I want to thank her for all of her time, all of her effort. I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and being part of it. Knowing that it's appreciated uh, makes it all worthwhile. So thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share it so that other people may listen to our wonderful guest's story and, and perhaps drive some, um, something meaningful from it because that's kind of what the point of this all is. So until next time, gold rings on you all.